First John chapter 4, and we will begin in verse 7. The Apostle John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has Seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And you can be seated. So I just want to dwell on this, this theme of love here this morning. I think when it comes to talking about God's love, a lot of times we can be like that proverbial, like crusty old guy who, you know, he said, you know, I love, I said, I said to my wife, I loved her when we got married and she doesn't need any reminders. If that changes, I'll let her know. And so I think especially just to be honest in kind of conservative circles, conservative churches, we, uh, we don't, we don't think about God's love or we don't talk about God's love, um, very often, but I think we need to be reminded of God's love. And I think we need to be reminded, uh, to express our love to God, no, how, no matter how imperfect it might be. I don't know about you, sometimes I struggle actually even telling God that I love him because because I don't love him perfectly. Well, if I got to wait until I can love God perfectly to express my love to God, it just ain't ever going to happen. I tell my wife I love her and I don't love her perfectly. I tell my kids I love them and I don't love them perfectly. And I think in the same way we can express our love to God even though we don't love him perfectly. And so I think it's good for us to meditate on not just our love for God, of course, but the true love, which is God's love for us. And uh, again, I, I don't know if it's because I'm a guy or what, but I don't like sit around and meditate on themes of love um, a whole lot. Uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about God's love. Um, but we need to understand the only reason that any of us have eternal life is because of the love of God. That's the only reason we have eternal life at all. Listen to Ephesians 1. It says, in love or because of love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Your salvation, your individual salvation 
was planned because God loved you. It was planned because God loved you. John 3.16, we're very familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. Your eternal life, our eternal life is wrapped up in the expression of God's love for us given in his son. So I just want to take some time this morning considering the love of God. Um, and let me just say this uh, plainly because I don't, I don't say it, I think, often enough. But God loves you. God loves you. He, he does. God, God loves you. The eternal creator God of the universe who keeps this whole thing going, he knows you and he loves you. And even if you're not a believer, actually Jesus says God loves you. He gives you breath and he gives you life and he gives you food and he gives you joy. Any happy thing that you have ever experienced in life comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights. Every good gift, every joy, every good thing. And there is a sense in which if you're not a believer, you're still under the wrath of God. But you know what? He still loved you enough to provide a way of salvation for you. That's how much God loves even his enemies. And if you are a believer, God loves you even more. He loves you more than any husband could ever love his wife, any wife could ever love their husband, any father or mother could ever love their children. Those are all just faint images of the true love that God has For us, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the love that God has for you is the same love that the Father has for the Son, that the Son has for the Spirit, and the Spirit has for the Father. You have been brought into an eternal, perfect, triune love that is just unimaginable. That's what you've been brought into. And so the Apostle John here gives us some of the greatest insight into the love of God in all of Scripture. It's profound and It's amazingly practical. It's practical in how we, in turn, love one another. If you've ever read 1 John, you know that that John is a little bit cyclical in how he he argues his point. Um, You ever ever play the hand stack game with little kids? You know, where you put your hand down, and then they put their hand down, and someone else puts their hand down, and then you put your hand on top, and and you start doing this thing? That's kind of how John argues his point. He makes a point, and then he makes another point, and then he makes another point. And then he comes around, and he makes that point again, and he makes that point again, and that point again. Because in John's mind, everything is just so interconnected. You can't, you can't just, just put it out in pieces. He, he stacks it all together to describe how God's love is. And how God's love is connected to the cross, and how the cross is connected to our love for each other, and how our love for each other is, is connected back to God's love, and round and round John goes. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take, I want to take this passage and I want to sort of take out each one of those individual components. I want to, I want to study each one of those individual components. And then at the end, we're just going to kind of read through it. And I think the whole thing will just fall together and we'll have a greater appreciation for God's love. So there's three points that John kind of stacks over and over and over again. The first point is that God's very nature is love. God's very nature is love. That's the first point. I don't know what comes to mind when you think about God or, or the nature of God. Maybe, maybe he seems like a strict parent to you and you've got to sort of toe the line or he's going to bust you. Maybe, maybe he's, he's loving and kind just sort of because he, he has to be. Maybe you think that God is irritated with you because you're not living up to his standards. Or, or maybe he seems so holy and glorious and amazing that he's just not personal to you. 
And John removes all of that. And he says, actually, the very nature of God is actually love. Love. Take a look at verses 8 and verse 16. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's pretty straightforward. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So in, in Greek, this is, this is just a, a short little sentence. It's ha theos agape estin. Literally, it's God love is. God love is. In English, sort of the, the word order matters because if you get the words out of order, it doesn't make any sense. Greek is a little bit more flexible. And so what they do in Greek is actually, if you want to emphasize something, you move it toward the front of the sentence. So Mount Everest tall is. Ocean deep is, right? To get the idea that Mount Everest is really tall. The ocean is really deep. God really is love. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to emphasize that God is love. And it's actually the same word order emphasizing love in both verses 8 and verse 16. And by the way, you can't flip that order. It's not a, it's not a two-way street. God is love, we can say that. But we can't say love is God. Those are not the same. There are some people in our culture who want to make love the highest good and, and yeah, I don't really think about God or whatever. I, I'm just out loving people. But that's not how it goes. Actually, we don't even know what love is unless we understand God and what God's definition of love is. You have to start with God and define love based on what God says love is, and then you can understand how to go about loving one another. Take a look at verse 7. We see that even here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from who? It's from God. This is how we know what love is, is because it is from God. He defines it. He shows it. Do you realize that, that we have to be commanded to love because it's not part of our nature? We do not naturally love. Maybe we'll love those who love us back. That's a very human love. And it's a, it's a type of genuine love. But we have to be commanded to love because we don't often love like God does. God never has to be commanded to love. It's just what he does. This is just who, what his nature is. God is just full of, of loving kindness and grace. I, I know you guys uh, know in, in, in Exodus, I, I quote this often, when, when God is passing by Moses because Moses wants to see God's glory, and, and God is passing by, and Moses sort of sees the hindsight of God's glory, and he's passing by. He also proclaims who he is. And he says, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh, a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast what? Love. I'm abounding in steadfast love. And this is what he says. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then he says it again. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. And then he goes on. You know when you go in for an interview, like one of the classic questions they ask you is tell me about yourself. And you got like 20 or 30 seconds to lay out sort of the gist of who you are and what you lay out is going to be sort of the basis for how the rest of that interview is going to go and maybe even the basis for how the rest of the 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 job is going to go 
Well, this is basically God giving his, let me tell you about myself for 30 seconds. And what does he emphasize two times in that passage? That he is abounding in steadfast love. These are the attributes that he sees are important to tell Moses about himself. And I love that idea of, of abounding in steadfast love. The idea is literally overflowing. It's like if a fountain were just overflowing with water. It's like you can't keep all the water in. It just keeps pouring out the side, pouring out the side. And it flows out not just to one or two people, but to thousands. There's no limit. You ever been to Golden Corral or like a really good buffet? And you get in there and there's just like meat everywhere. And it's just... It's like there's chicken and there's pork and there's there's just everything and there's burritos and there's rice and there's bread and there's salad and there's cake, four kinds of cake and there's pie and ice cream and there's all these drinks and it just keeps coming and people keep coming in and it just keeps flowing. It just keeps going. That's God's love towards everybody. It just overflows. There's no limit. It just keeps pouring out and pouring out, and now you're hungry, you're not going to listen to anything else I say. <laughs> but that's God's love. This is, this, is, this is his nature. When asked, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. This is what God says. I'm abounding in steadfast love and covenant-keeping kindness. That's who I am. At this point, we kind of have to stop and ask, well, what is love? This is his nature, and he's got a lot of it, but, but what does this mean? Is he just nice is he a more powerful version of santa is that all we mean when we say god is god is love no this is this is agape this god is agape it is a self-sacrificing self-giving love there are three words in greek you probably heard this uh for the word love there's eros which is actually not in the new testament it's used outside of the new testament in the greek world that's like a romantic love a sexual love that kind of idea the other two words that do appear in the New Testament are agape and phileo. A lot of people try to make a huge distinction between these words. There's actually not a lot of distinction. They're used interchangeably and synonymously all the time. Both are used actually to describe God. Um, phileo maybe is more of like a friendship, a, a natural just affection. Um, maybe that's about all that we could say, but they're used interchangeably. But here it's just agape. It's agape love. It's the same kind of love that we're called to have toward one another. Love is patient. Love is kind, right? 1 Corinthians 13. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. But those are actually really ways in which we love one another, aren't they? Because some of those are not actually true of God. God does keep a record of wrongs. For those who are not believers. But he's still love. That's still his nature. God actually does boast. You want to know why? Because he's the greatest. He's amazing. He boasts in himself all the time. Paul says, I will boast in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ. We're called to boast in God. Because God is so great. God says for us to praise him all throughout the Psalms. Praise me, guys. Praise me. Why? Because I'm the greatest. He really is. We can't say that, but he can so what is God's love? I think we can say a couple of things about it. Number one, it's gracious. Grace is a gift that is not deserved. God gives us life and breath and everything. So, so take a breath in. That's all grace of God. Every joy, every good thing you have, 
that meal that you're now thinking about eating in about two hours, all of that is from the hand of God. Every little bit of it is gracious. And it's gracious because the only thing that we deserve is actually punishment for our sin in hell forever. We know that. God knows that. And yet God gives us good things anyway. God does this all the time. And God is merciful. Mercy is just the opposite of grace. Grace is giving us something we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us the punishment that we do deserve. They're they're sort of opposite concepts. But this is actually what God described himself back in Exodus. He is merciful and he is gracious. And I think we experience this all the time. We experience God's mercy all the time. I mean, how many times do we do stuff and we don't get busted for it? There's like literally no consequence. There's nothing. We know we did it. God knows we did it. Other people maybe know we did it. And there's just no consequence. Do you realize God could have set it up so that it was like instant karma all the time? Right? So, so you know, like you get to work and it's like, well, why is John not talking? Oh, well, uh, God made him mute because he said something sideways to his wife this morning. So he's mute for two hours. Oh, okay. Well, guess don't do that. I mean, if we covet with our eyes, right? God could just make us blind for two hours. Hope it doesn't happen when we're driving down the freeway and a sports car drives by, right? He could have set up the world like that. But he doesn't set up the world like that. Why? Because he's merciful. You guys, God's mercy is on us all the time. We get away with all kinds of things. And it's not that we necessarily get away with it. It's that God knows and he's merciful. God's love is also sacrificial. It's gracious, it's merciful, it's sacrificial. A sacrifice is something that you give at a cost to yourself for a greater good. Right? So in baseball, you do a sacrifice play, right? You get up to the plate and you go to bunt. Nobody gets glory for bunting. There's probably a record somewhere for the most bunts, but you're doing a sacrifice play, right? You bunt so that you get out at first base so that someone else can get further along. You sacrifice yourself for the greater good of the whole of the team. That's what a sacrifice is. And God's love, in fact, is sacrificial. And sacrifice is really a good lead-in to the second point, I think, that John makes here. So God's nature is love. That was point number one. Point number two is that God's love is shown most fully in the cross. God's love is shown most fully in the cross of Jesus Christ. John's basic point is this, is if you're not sure whether God is loving, if you're not sure whether his nature is to love or not, all you got to do is look to the cross of Jesus. And that should settle it. All we have to do is look to the cross. And we see the ultimate display of sacrifice that the father made giving his son. And he sandwiches these truths. So take a look in verses 9 and 10. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how God showed his love. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Look down at verse 14. We see the same kind of thing. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And again in verses 16 and 17. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. 
God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. God is love and so we're love in the world. That's that's how we are. So how do we know that God is love? Because God sent his son into the world to be a sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins. God sent Jesus into the world on a rescue mission. I think most of us like rescue mission stories. I like rescue mission stories like the military stories, you know, where like somebody's caught behind enemy lines and special ops, they got to go in and, and sneak in and there's this danger of getting caught or shot or whatever and they go in and they rescue the guy and they come back out and there's this big celebration that everybody, you know, yay, you know, they save the guy. But that's not the rescue mission actually that God does. The rescue mission that God does is even better. Because God goes into the world to save not his friends, but his enemies. The people who are dead set against him, he goes in to save. And his rescue mission isn't trying to dodge death or avoid death in this salvation. This rescue mission is going in knowing that the son is going to die. He knows he's going to die for his enemies. And yet he still takes on flesh And he goes in and he accomplishes the rescue mission. In love, God sent his son that we might live. That's what verse 9 is all about. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that he sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He came that we might live. What does it mean to live? Aren't aren't we already alive? Aren't Aren't we living right now? Well, yeah, we're alive in the flesh. But when somebody is conceived, they're conceived in sin. They're born sinful by nature. It means that they have no capacity to love God. They have no ability to love God on their own. And left to themselves, they would die in their sins and face the eternal wrath of God. But in love, God sent his son that the enemies of God might live. That they might have a capacity to understand the love of God and to enjoy God forever as their merciful Savior. So now we know God personally. That's what spiritual life is. Jesus says that's what eternal life is all about, that we might know the Father and we might know the Son, and we do that through the work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's this intimate knowledge of the God who saved us. Not just that it's some concept out there, but know that that God saved me, not based on anything I did, but just all out of his mercy. Because that's his character. It just overflows. How did that happen? How did God accomplish that salvation? John says it happened through propitiation. Propitiation. That's verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I think the NIV says he's the atoning sacrifice. I think most of the other translations have propitiation. It's a big word, but it's an important word. And it basically means a sacrifice that removes wrath. That's all it is. It's a sacrifice that removes wrath. And this is really where the depth of God's love is shown. Because in Jesus, God satisfies his own wrath toward us. 
through the sacrifice of his son. This is the amazing part about God's love. He was angry at us. He was wrathful at us. And so what he did is rather than just let us hang out to dry and absorb the wrath, he sent his own son to take his own wrath for us. That's the amazing love of God. That he saved his enemies and he did so at extreme cost to himself by giving his son. And there's nothing we can do to add to that. There's no works. There's no good thing we can do. All we can do is simply accept it and believe that that's actually what God did to bring glory to himself. And we are saved through faith alone in Christ alone. But that's the propitiation. He set his own son forth as a propitiation to take his own wrath to shield sinners, as we sang, with his blood that we might die to sin and live to him. So physically what happened as Jesus was dying is he was beaten and he was tortured. And as he hung on the cross, he was unable to catch his breath. And he eventually died basically of lack of oxygen. But spiritually what was happening is that he was put forward as a sacrifice by his own father to absorb his own father's wrath toward us. I have to tell you guys, I, I love you guys, but I'm not giving up any of my children for you. Not one. God in his love gave up his eternal son for all of us. That's the magnitude of God's love. Verse 10. In this is love. This is how you define love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, if you ever wonder whether or not God loves you, just look at the cross. Just look at Jesus. What did God do with his son on the cross? God doesn't love you because of all of your devotions this week. He doesn't love you because you tithe. He's not mad at you because you weren't perfect. You are accepted by the Father if you have faith in the beloved son, Jesus, who did everything for you. That's the propitiation. And it's a rescue operation. That's what verse 14 is getting at. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He goes in to save. That's his mission, is to rescue all those that the Father has given to him. This doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved or will be saved. The Bible does not teach universalism where, where somehow everybody ends up getting to heaven in the end anyway. No, what the Bible means here is that Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only way to have your sins forgiven. He's the only way to have that eternal life, to know the Father, to rejoice in him, is only through the Son. It's to turn from your sins and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in a life of faith. He is our Savior. It is a rescue mission. And really, it's trusting that God has loved you through his sacrifice. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. This is salvation. John just told us that Jesus is our Savior, and now he tells us, well, how do we actually apply that salvation? How do we, how do we get that salvation? Well, we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. That his saving purpose on the cross is your only hope for salvation. That's how you have eternal life. That's how God abides in you, literally resides in you, and spiritually you reside in God. Is through that faith, through that confession. 
John says, look, if you understand and believe that God sent Jesus to give you eternal life, and if you know and you believe that Jesus is the sacrifice for your sins, and you understand that the whole mission of him was to save the world, there's only, there's only one conclusion that you can come to, and that's in verse 16. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. There's nothing else you can conclude. That God loves us. And his whole plan from all eternity past was to rescue us. And before we move on, let me, let me ask, how do we know that Jesus' death propitiated the wrath of God? This is, this is what Tim was getting at a little bit ago. How do we know that that actually happened? We read it, but, but how do we know that his death satisfied the wrath of God? It's what we celebrate this morning, the resurrection of Jesus. That's what vindicates it all. So when I was first, when I first got married, actually even a little before, I, uh, I was poor, and uh, so I financed a truck, and uh, my payment was $175 every month for three years. And, uh, and so I kept making that payment, and making that payment, and making that payment, so I made all these payments. And at the end, how do I know that I actually own the truck, that they received the payments? Like, like what's the transaction? Well, they sent me this little piece of paper in the mail. And on the top it said, Certificate of Title. This justified all that I had been paid. The resurrection justifies all that had been paid on the cross. That's how we know that Jesus' sacrifice was actually a legitimate payment for our sins. Lots of people died on the cross. I don't know if you know that. Millions of people died on crosses. Even people who claimed that they were the Messiah. They claimed that they were the Jewish Savior. Only one of them rose again from the dead. Jesus, the true Messiah, the true Savior of the world. That's what the resurrection is. It's proof that Jesus actually did what he said he was going to do. It's proof that he actually did remove the wrath of God that we deserve, and he gave eternal life to those who believed. Tim quoted Romans 4.25. Jesus, Jesus was delivered up for our sins, and he was raised for our justification. It confirmed, his resurrection confirmed all that he did on the cross. So I know that my sins are forgiven and I'm a child of God because Jesus rose from the dead. You can know that you're a child of God and your sins are forgiven and the wrath of God was placated on the cross because Jesus rose from the dead. He's the certificate of title, as it were, that the payment has been made. So God's very nature is love. That love is shown most fully in the cross. How does that affect us? That's the third point. That God's love is made visible when believers love one another. God's love is made visible when believers love one another. Maybe we could even say is made tangible. This is actually the whole point of the section, is, is John is encouraging his readers to love one another. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So here's the thing about God's love. If you really believe it, if you really believe that God has loved you and loved you most fully in Christ, it actually changes you. Understanding and believing that love actually has a transforming power in our lives. And so if you are born of God and know God, which are sort of two ways of saying the same thing, then your natural inclination is just going to be to go and love. And to love especially other believers. It's, it's like you can't help it, right? You, you, you've seen the depth of the grace of God. And, and you're just like, I, I just got to give it away. It's like being at that buffet 
and you sit down at the table and you're like, oh, you got to try some of this chicken. Oh, you got to try some of this rice. Like, it's just overflowing anyway. And so it just overflows out of you. That's how God's love affects us. If you remember in the Gospels, that's what makes the parable of the unmerciful servant so offensive. Right? Remember the one where, where the king forgives the guy like $10 billion? And you're like, how did he get loaned $10 billion anyway? But whatever. But he gets forgiven the $10 billion, and he turns around and he goes out with the guy that owns, owes him like $15,000, and he starts choking him. And you're like, dude, are you serious? Like, you, you just experienced amazing love and amazing forgiveness, and you can't forgive this guy for, I mean, it's a lot, 15 grand is a lot of money, but you can't forgive him for that? No, those who know the love of God show the love of God to others. This is where the gospel has a sanctifying effect. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time loving people sometimes. I don't want to love them. I know I'm commanded to love them, so I kind of like have to do it. But I've been a Christian for 25 years, and sometimes loving people is still tough. I don't want to love them. What do we do about that? We remember the gospel. You remember I said that John's argument is sort of like that hand stack game. It's over and over and over again. This is what he does here. He's telling Christians to love each other. Why? Because of God's love. Well, how do we see God's love? Well, it was shown on the cross. And round and round it goes, stacking up. So here's the whole thing. This is how it unfolds. Look at verses 7 through 12. See if you can kind of follow now the flow of his argument. And you'll see he just stacks it up and it it just all it all comes together beloved verse 7 let us love one another for love is from god and whoever loves has been born of god and knows god anyone who does not love does not know god because god is love in this verse 9 the love of god was made manifest among us that god sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him and this is love not that we have loved but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. See, when we understand what he's doing here with his argument, it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful sort of merry-go-round of truth that we get to behold And I love what he says in in verse 12. Uh, The way any Christian, whether days in the faith or or years or decades in the faith, finds the ability to love is just by looking at the cross again. You never move beyond the cross. So if you're 25 years in the faith like I am and you're trying to figure out, how do I love this person? You know what you do? You go look at Jesus on the cross. If you're 50 years in the faith, you know what you do? You go look at Jesus on the cross. And you go look at what did you deserve compared to what did you get from God? And you go take a look at that neighbor of yours that's hard to love and what do they deserve and what should you be giving them in return? We never get beyond this. It's always the same. This love never changes. Verse 12 is, is kind of cool. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's kind of a weird way, but what he's saying is, look, we can't see God. God is God is invisible. But there's actually kind of a way that we can see God, and we see God when we see other believers loving other people, right? So so if, if I had a balloon in here that was filled with helium, we can't see helium. 
but we can see a balloon that is filled with helium, and we can see the effect that the helium has on that balloon. And so we know there's helium in there. How do we see God when we can't? Well, the closest we can get is a believer who is filled up with the love of God and expressing it outwards. And when we do that, actually, people can, in some sort of sense, see the love of God and see God at work through his people. It's actually really cool. Once we have those truths down, the rest of the section also unfolds. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. That's the Holy Spirit who has brought us into this love. Verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God so that we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and God abides in him. Excuse me, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. Just as God is love, so we are love in the world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Fear is to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So how do you know you have the Spirit? Because you believe in Jesus and you're filled with the love of God. And you just can't help but express the love of God. That's why he says it's impossible for someone to say, actually, I love God and then hate his brother. If that's the case, you actually don't know God at all. Because you don't know the grace and the mercy and the kindness that he's poured out on you. And see, here's what God really wants. He wants the earth to be filled with people who reflect his love to all those around. I've had the, the privilege a couple of times of uh, flying over Minnesota. Minnesota is called the land of 10,000 lakes. And if you fly over Minnesota on a clear day, it's actually really amazing to see some of these lakes. You look down and you see like these spots here and there, and they just reflect the sky or the sun or whatever. And it's just amazing. It's just beautiful. It's like this sort of shattered mirror all across the landscape. That's actually what God wants all over the world, is he wants people who love him and who reflect his love by loving one another. So that when he looks down, all he sees is his love spreading all over the world, and it all then back reflects to his own glory. And I can do no better than what John says in, in verse 7 as we end. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are love. And son, that you are love. And spirit, that you are love. And we pray that we too would take the truths of the gospel, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and we would bend out that grace and mercy to those around us and love them deeply as you have loved us, that you might receive that glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.